It's the Perry and Shauna podcast on the real life journey with you, reminding you that you are Abba's beloved child and that Jesus has called you into his massive mission to heal the world. We've got David L. Bonson with us. He's the founder and managing partner and chief investment officer of the Bonson Group, a national private wealth management firm. He's a frequent guest on Fox News, Fox Business, CNBC, and Bloomberg. He has a passion about the integration of faith and economics. And he's got a number of books, written a number of really compelling books, and a brand new one that's just come out called Full-Time Work and the Meaning of Life. Thank you so much for being with us this morning, David. Well, thank you so much for having me. We have got a lot of... I think maybe confused ideas about God's intention for us when it comes to work and the workplace. What what would you say is the biblical perspective on how we're to approach what God has given us to do, the work that we do? I think the first issue that has to be sort of rethought, re-understood is the idea that the work itself is important to God and that is not true only because of the benefits that can come out of it. We're all accustomed to thinking that when we get a paycheck and we provide for our families, when we tithe to our church, when we support a missionary, we're all used to thinking about those things as beneficial. And indeed, they are. They're either commanded or they're uh, added extra you know, good things that can be done for the kingdom. But in that message about the pragmatic benefits that come from work, we often ignore the fact that the work itself is meaningful. And yes, I do believe my job in a sort of corner office finance position on Wall Street, that that matters a a great deal to God. And in our society, there's a lot of socioeconomic benefits that come from a job like that. But I also believe that the maid in a hotel her work matters to God. And I don't mean that just because uh, the worker gets to work hard. The worker um, is is learning valuable character traits. Even though all of those things are true, I think that us serving humanity through our work Mm -hmm. and building the kingdom Mm -hmm. in technology, in medicine, in media, in finance, in education, in all these different sectors – I believe that God's kingdom is being built and that this was how he created the world. It was what he created us for. And I really believe the church too often is presenting work as something that is transactional. Mm -hmm. Mm. So it's really that our work is our ministry. It's the way we bring flourishing to the world because every, every job that we have can be a way to serve and that's our ministry. And so often we're told in the church, which I'm a part of, to, you know, find your ministry here in the church, plug into something here that fits your gift, when it should also be said, you know, what you do, where you work, that's your ministry, not just in the way you reach out to people, but in the way that you do your work, that is your calling. Am I, am I getting it right? Well, I think you are. And I I would state it really emphatically that the terminology can be possibly uh, really problematic when we separate or when a church speaks in a way that separates ministry 
from the things we do in our mm-hmm. life. This sort of mm-hmm. Sunday versus the other six days of the week kind of thing. If you have the belief about kingdom, about what our, what, you know, when Paul said, whatever you eat or drink, do all the glory of God, you know, do your work heartily as for the Lord. But even apart from some of these beautiful passages that Paul wrote in his epistles, going back just to Genesis 1, before sin entered the world, God said he made us to steward the earth, mm-hmm. to cultivate the earth, to have dominion over the earth. So I think our ministry is exactly what you said, what we do in our work, what we do to build culture, to build civilization. Mm-hmm. And I think that it is a very pietistic view that says, well, what you do with church is ministry and what you do outside of it is secular The term we used to use for that is called dualism, separating the sacred from the secular. God doesn't have that. God, God, all of this world belongs to the Lord. Mm -hmm. And and so that is the way I, I really believe we need to think about our careers, our jobs, our endeavors. Is it all of them matter? And yes, they're all ministry. All right, I'm going to bounce something off you, David, and just get your reaction. We don't need another movie about a person working too hard who realizes they need to spend more time with their family. We actually need a movie about a person not working hard enough who realizes they need to spend more time working. That just doesn't sound right. Well, I suppose it may not be a a great movie on the Hallmark Channel, but it is a movie I I desperately want to see made because I think every one of us has seen about a hundred of the other. Mm -hmm. I think that the the cliche idea that someone is working real hard, committed to their career, and then uh, wakes up one day and and whether it was an old girlfriend or a visit back to the their hometown of their youth or, or something, all of a sudden decides that they want to get back on the path of remembering the things that are important in life mm. and leave behind the career pursuits. Um, I think that that message might very well be well-meaning at times, but it's leaving a cultural uh, message that is entirely unhealthy. It's pitting our work against the important things in life instead of incorporating and integrating work as one of the important things. And it has also um, been somewhat sinister in, in, in sort of creating this, this idea that um, people are out pursuing their careers for selfish ends where all the other things we do in life, we have really good and noble ends. Hmm. It just isn't true. Sin sin can pollute all things, and we have to be hmm. careful to avoid idolatry in all things. Yeah. And yet, yeah, as a matter of sentimentality, I wish that we would make a movie about people who wanted to work harder. I'm curious what, how you think that the message that we have sent as a culture is impacting the generations that come up and how they view work. I don't think there's any question how it's impacting it. It's devastating. 
And I think that you have a baby boomer generation that worked very hard. I have more I could say about some of that in a moment. Uh, the Gen X generation that I happen to be a part of, I turned 50 this year. I'm smack dab in the middle of Gen X. But then you look into the millennials and particularly right now with Gen Z, the, those who are kind of in their 20s, I think it's very different messages across these four generations mm how they view work. But I think the younger generation was basically taught to resent work and to believe it to be a necessary evil. Um, and, and the necessary part has become optional as well. My kids tell me I work too much, so I can just say, David Bonson says, no, I don't. <laughs> well, I don't know the age of your kids, but I do know this. I believe very uh, uh, firmly. My, my book is dedicated to my father. He passed away when he was 47. Mm. Um, he was, I was 20. He was a Christian intellectual, a pastor, professor, speaker, writer, one of the most brilliant men of God you've ever met. And he worked all the time. And he was my best friend, and my mm. mentor, and my mm. hero, and I loved him dearly. Mm. But I have no memory of my father greater than waking up in the morning and seeing him in his study working. Mm. And I think that's a memory a lot of parents ought to leave their kids. You mentioned that the four different generations have got different takes on what it means to participate in work and how they view work. I'm curious, first of all, what they are, but then secondly, if they either do or do not line up with the Bible says, with what the Bible says about how we enter into work. Well, I'm going to start with the the older generation that is kind of relevant to this, which is, of course, the baby boomers. And it, it really changed all of history. But the baby boomers, which were largely born after World War II, um, were the first generation that got to face consciously this idea of retirement, mm. the notion that if you work throughout a certain period of time, you will A live long enough to have this uh, period in front of you and B, the society was prosperous enough that in theory one could afford to be out of the workforce. For most of human history, both of those things were off the table. You didn't have a retirement because you died and you didn't have a retirement if you lived because you didn't have the money to. It wasn't mm -hmm. an affordable proposition so uh, life expectancy is up 20 years since World War II. And, of course, the ability to save with pensions and 401ks and IRAs, you add into that the Social Security system. There's different ways in which people can afford to be out of the workforce for 20, 25 years. So boomers had this idea in front of them, and they worked hard. And I think that's all a good thing. What I think was absolutely catastrophic about the way the baby boomers um, have played out in terms of their view of work is that the idea that work was something you did to not have to do it anymore hmm. has really sunk into the society. Hmm. And right now we deal with a lot of 65 year olds leaving the workforce, sometimes 55 year olds and they do so because they can. Hmm. However, I would like to say that their expertise and their experience is still needed in the workforce. Yeah. Now, am I suggesting a 70-year-old should work the same hours as a 30-year-old? Of course not. There's going to be age and stage of life differences physically, mentally. Um, but I will say this. I think that the notion that a 25-year vacation 
is the reason somebody mm. works is yeah. totally outside of the Bible. Come on. Yeah. But, but, you know, then the question is, okay, well, that may be a flaw in the way the boomers think about things, but are we to believe that the younger generations are not impacted by that? I think it's very hard for me to criticize a 26-year-old for not being passionate about their work if the message they've gotten is for their entire life, is that work is not something you only do to not have to do it. If it is, if it is essentially sunk into them that work is really a means to get a financial security. I believe in financial security. I believe in greater financial freedom, a good quality of life. I want people to have more time with their spouses, their grandkids, all of those things. But yeah, golfing seven days a week and walking on the beach with your wife all day long or with your husband all day long. Um, I, I I don't think that's quite the biblical idea. Uh, if we're to be productive, we're to be productive our whole lives and still have, of course, an awareness of what those differences might mean physically and mentally. The Gen Xers do seem to be a hardworking um, group. They're kind of stuck in the middle, hence the term Gen X. They're they're right between the the boomers and the millennials. And, and yet I believe that uh, it's a mixed bag. There's a lot of Gen Xers who um, it's really underrated. They've been very productive, hardworking, uh, accomplished a great deal of things. And, and yet I'm not sure all the Gen Xers were totally satisfied in their career. And, and we talked a bit off air about sometimes people having a, a successful career, but not feeling that it was significant because they've sort of been taught by their church that your career is one thing, but then a life of significance is really defined by extracurricular activities, mm -hmm. volunteering at a nonprofit, things mm -hmm. you do in your local church. And I think that's the heart I have for a lot of Gen Xers who are at that middle age part of their life is to not look at their careers with regret, but to look at them as the fact that they were building God's kingdom and that there is, yes, yeah, still a whole journey mm -hmm. in front of them, but there's been a wonderful journey behind them as well. Mm -hmm. And then what about, just real quick, what about uh, millennials and then Gen Zers? Yeah, I think I think I have a lot more optimism for Gen Zers than I do for millennials. I think there are a lot of Gen Zers that um, want to feel connected to their careers. They ask questions. They want to be mentored. I think the millennial generation, and I know I'm speaking stereotypically here, so I apologize sure. for any offense I'm causing, but there are people in the millennial generation, it was largely defined as wanting to work less and being a bit more entitled, wanting, uh, I talk in the book about people interviewing me and their first question is what the work-life balance is going to be like. Mm. And not only do I find that kind of an appalling question to ask your prospective boss on your interview to mm. work for him, his or her <laughs> company, but the whole idea of work-life balance is offensive to me. What does it mean to balance work with our life as if work is not part of our life? And, and I know that this is problematic because if I went home to my wife and said, honey, I'm just trying to do a little marriage life balance here. You know, I need, I need to kind of separate the marriage from the rest <laughs> of my life and get my own space around. I mean, we integrate our lives. We mm -hmm. integrate the things that are important in our lives. And I think it was largely a millennial Gen, Gen Y uh, construct that there was this work-life balance thing that basically just meant working less hours and having more margin and things like that. David, talk to the person who feels like 
they're in a dead-end job. And maybe they're even thinking, man, I wish I were in the ministry. Talk to them. Well, I think that that, that second aspect there um, is a, a particular one that I want to address, that if they're in a job and they want to be in the ministry because they believe there's something more Christian about working for a church than working for a bookstore or working for a factory or working for you know a local company, um, I think theologically it's inaccurate. I think that they have to understand the kingdom of God is bigger than just church and just nonprofits. It includes all these different sectors that make our economy go. Mm -hmm. And I want to point out that when we go to work, we're able to serve people in a different way. And sometimes that can be even more profound. You know, I can go to my next door neighbor's house and bring them something to serve them just out of the goodness of my heart. I'm trying to help them if they're sick or, or struggling. But when I go to work, I might be helping 1 million people that are I'm never going to meet. I might be making a product, goods and services in the economy that's going to be bought by people on the other side of the world. Mm. There is a leverage in the beauty of a free market, in a free enterprise system, that our work is enabling us to serve others by playing a role in the production of goods and services that meet the needs of humanity. That's what our work is. That's what God called us to do, to cultivate this earth. And so if we have that feeling that, oh, I wish I was doing something more valuable, I want people to realize that God thinks there is value in their work. Mm. And this, and this is the way I like to sum it up. Our work matters because God cares about the worker. That's us, the subject of the work, the one doing the work. He cares about who the work is being done for. That's the object of the work, mm-hmm. the customers, the, the people receiving the benefits of the work we do. And then he cares about the work itself. He cares about the actual activity God cared so much about his work that at the end of the day, he stopped and said, this was good. Mm -hmm. But then on the sixth day, he made mankind and he said, this was very good. And he made us in his image. I wonder what that means. What's it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, the very next verses, he told us what it means. He said that we will now be tasked with cultivating stewarding, growing, having dominion over the earth. We were to be workers just as he himself was a worker. Mm -hmm. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. And I think it's a beautiful thing. And I hope that will serve as some form of encouragement to the person struggling with the thing you talk about. Mm -hmm. And as a very basic, basic, obvious statement, if everybody was in the ministry, we wouldn't have food. We wouldn't have clothing. We wouldn't have, I mean, we need, we need a a lot more um, work to be done than just the work that's happening within the church to flourish as a community. To flourish as a community, as a society, as a nation. And, And you're right. You bring up things like we wouldn't have food, which are the necessities of life. But of course, a lot of times it's hard for us to realize that the necessities we enjoy, we now take for granted because people worked and mm-hmm. built systems and built supply chains and improved systems of delivery. But even apart from the necessities of life, the luxuries of life, 
the ways that we can do things now so much more efficiently. We're participating on a radio program right now that involves uh, terrestrial technology, involves digital technology that didn't exist apart from people working, creating, mm-hmm. innovating, producing. Mm-hmm. This is all part of God's design for his creation. It's all part of what he's redeeming to himself. Um, and it is to me, uh, the way we ought to think about God's kingdom, that our role in it is really a hugely uh, held up in the identity we have as our, as our work and vocation calls. Lord, even if everybody else deserts you, I won't. I'll die for you. Those were Peter's words a few hours before he denied Jesus three times. So it was Thursday afternoon in East Nashville last week, and I went for a run after a day of creating music. And toward the end of my run, about five in the afternoon, I heard a rooster crowing. Mm. And immediately I thought of Peter denying Jesus. Peter didn't think there was an unfaithful bone in his body. And yet Jesus said, before the rooster crows, you will have denied me three times. No way, Lord, not me. And as I wrapped up my run and thinking about Peter's denials. I thought of myself and the ways I've been unfaithful to Jesus, the ways I've said, Lord, I'll die for you. I'll die for you, everything. But then I don't know the man. May God curse me if I'm lying. I don't know him. The crow of the rooster puts a finger on me. As Paul says in Romans, there is no unrighteous, not even one, not even one. Mm. And it's not that I've just kind of messed up and made some mistakes. No, I've broken my vows to be faithful to Jesus so many times in my thoughts, my words, and my actions. I don't know if you can relate to Peter, but I can. And I'm so grateful for Peter's failure because I know there's hope for me. Mm And if you can relate with that, I'd love to hear from you. 800-968-8930. You can text us 800-968-8930. Because Jesus forgave Peter. He said to Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome, after his resurrection, go tell my disciples and Peter that I've risen. And Peter. Mm Mm-hmm. He went after him. He restored his best friend who had denied him, who had said, I don't know the man. The crow of the rooster will always be a reminder that I've been an unfaithful adulterer toward Jesus. I know that's a strong phrase, but that's really what it is Mm. when we're disloyal to Jesus. It's like we've committed adultery. When you say disloyal to Jesus, are you referring to sin in our lives? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Every time we lie, stretch a truth, every time we speak ill of another person, you know, we've made vows to Jesus to to be like him. And, and every time that we, we aren't, you know, we're being disloyal. Yeah, I feel like my own disloyalty usually comes in the form of instead of turning to God when I truly need God the most— somehow believing that yeah, something yeah. lesser is sure. going to there you go is going to meet a soul need i i had i was i had a rough weekend i'll just be honest with you i had a really really rough weekend i'm sorry 
Yeah. And on Saturday afternoon, I just, I, I'm just being honest and this may sound really stupid to you, but I thought I was running errands. I was up in Grand Rapids and I was like, I drove right by Crumble and I was like, I am going to go get a cookie. (laughs) I'm going to go get a Crumble cookie and I'm going to eat the whole flipping thing. And it was just, is a Crumble cookie sinful? No. But for me, it was, I'm going to do something to make myself better. I'm going to go eat a cookie. And I know that at the end of eating a whole crumble cookie, which is like not personal size, let me just say right up front, (laughs) that I would feel crappy, that I would feel physically gross, you know, and also feel like, well, that didn't solve my problem. Now did it? Yeah. It would only make it worse. But it's just, I fall for really stupid substitutes. And, and I could sense God saying, I'm right here. Mm-hmm. Like what you're hoping that cookie will do for you, I can do and so much more. Yeah. It's a, it's a perfect illustration. And I can, you know, I can go after achievements and such accomplishments going to Nashville to, to get my identity. And that's, that's being unfaithful to Jesus. If I turn to that as mm-hmm. my identity, as my source, you know, so it's it's real in my life. I fall short. There's no unrighteous. No, not one. So the crow of the rooster reminds me of my unfaithfulness, but it will always be a reminder that Jesus forgives and restores the greatest of sinners like me. And if there's any loyalty in my heart toward Jesus, and there is, it's because he's forgiven me and he loves me. And he keeps on cleansing my heart from all my unfaithfulness. And Lord, you know, Shauna, I just called you Lord. (laughs) (laughs) Lord Shauna. (laughs) That's funny. Lord Shauna. But, you know, for you, there's Jesus keeps on cleansing Mm -hmm. us from our unfaithfulness. Isn't that awesome? It is awesome. And he keeps, and here's the thing. Not only does he, he cleanse us and not only does that remind us of where else can you go that you're going to receive that, right? Like, oh my goodness, we want to turn to him. I want to turn to him. I don't mm-hmm. want in my disloyalty, in my unfaithfulness to be settling for stuff that is just so small and ridiculous. Yeah. I, I want I want instead those to be triggers that send me running to the heart of God. Yeah, and you know, we we get tired of running to other things too. Mm-hmm. And God just shows us, you know, how's that working out for you? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, Lord, we just thank you for putting a finger on the fact that we fall short of the glory of God. We fall short of giving you the glory that you deserve. But thank you, Lord, that your forgiveness is great and it's vast and it's changing us. the church we are the church you and me and it's kind of funny because we get into conversations where we talk about the problems that the church has you know what the church needs to do right what the church where the problem is with the church today yeah Yeah. you know we get into it and and we think somehow we're on the outside looking at it and from where we stand we can see the problem so clearly right but the problem is we are the church it's you and me so if we're if we're complaining about the church we're actually the people, the very people that can do something about it. I've never thought about this until this morning. That's not true. For sure you've thought about this. <laughs> not not in the whole context of, 
you know, the church these days, Yeah. you know, I've never thought about, well, you're, I'm talking about myself or <laughs> yeah. you're talking about yourself. Yeah. So that's a great point. Well, there's some beautiful things that we can learn from the early church. If we look back to the church and its origin in the book of Acts, we see the way that they were behaving with one another. And Acts 4 verse 32 says, all the believers were one in heart and mind. Wow. Could you just picture that? All of us, one in heart and mind. They were one in heart and mind, and no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything that they had. And there are some folks that this verse makes them really nervous because they're like, wait a minute, that sounds like communism. We all have to just bring everything. We have to sell everything we own and bring everything we have. And and no matter how much money you make, everything gets distributed evenly. And I think we picture it like, okay, so the people who are making all the money, they bring their money to the table, their hard-earned money. And the people who aren't making the money, they get just as much as the people who are making money. You know, that's how we view that, what was happening. But that's not what was happening at all. Because communism, communism says, what's mine is yours. I'll take that. I'll take that right there. Or no, what's yours is mine. I'll take that from you. And what they were experiencing was actually koinonia, which is Christian fellowship. And koinonia says, what's mine is yours, and I'm happy to share that with you. Mm -hmm. It's not compulsion. No, they weren't forced to it. There was no leader saying, everybody must bring their things and, you know, lay them down before the church. Right. They were responding in generosity out of what happened just before this verse, because the church was under great persecution. This is right after Pentecost. The risen Jesus had been spending time with them, preparing them for this time and saying, hey, wait until I pour out my spirit because there's a power that's going to come on you. And it did. <laughs> the power came with power. And the church was under persecution and, and the religious, religious leaders were actually even just going, what is going on? 3,000 people added to their number in one day, in one moment. What's happening? Peter's trying to explain what's happening. Because of his boldness in sharing the gospel, they put Peter and John in prison. They tell him, you need to stop talking about Jesus and they lay it on really, really thick, right? Like they threaten him. And these are the people who put Jesus on the cross. So this is a legitimate threat. Peter and John's response is, that's actually the one thing that we can't do. <laughs> we can't stop talking about Jesus. So if you release us, we will keep talking about Jesus. Yeah, we've got to obey God, not, yeah, not people. Right. And they do, they kind of lay it on a little bit thicker and then they release them. They immediately go back to the church and say, hey guys, this is what the religious leaders are saying, that we need to stop talking about Jesus. And the church's response, well, let's just pray that we can talk about him all the more. Let's just pray that God gives us courage and boldness to be able to continue to proclaim who he is to the world. And they keep telling the story of Jesus. And as they go about this task together in one heart and in one mind. They've got this love and this generosity for one another that is just, hey, whatever I've got that can help you. And it wasn't like everybody just dumping all their goods in one pot. It wasn't that. It, if you keep reading, it says from time to time, as needs surfaced in their lives, they responded to it. It just responded to what showed up on the radar. So it wasn't, you know, everybody owning equally all things and nobody having personal possessions. That's not what was happening here. I remember when we moved from Phoenix, we're Michigan natives, but when we moved from Phoenix to back to West Michigan and we lost everything in a fire, mm -hmm. all our belongings in a fire, and the company 
was pretty pretty corrupt. You know that that it was in a warehouse and hmm. an employee threw a cigarette and everything burned down. And they they were pretty corrupt before that, but we saw the corruption afterwards. They they tried to make us pay for delivering our furniture, which never got delivered. They tried to make us pay for it, for one thing. And then they had some some of the stuff in, like, storage bins, so not all of it got burned up, and they wouldn't give us that stuff. Oh, my goodness. They, they wanted us to pay. Yeah, that's and such. wild. But the point of all this is that we have a friend in Phoenix who's a lawyer, and she basically took this case on like a bulldog, hmm. and it took a lot of fight, but she she got everything back to us that that didn't burn up. Sure. But she gave of her time and yeah. her her you know that time is money for a lawyer See, and she did this for us. I couldn't have done that for you. I mean I love you Perry and I'm there for you and I would have empathized with you but I don't have the legal prowess to be able right? to know how to do that. But she did and she mm-hmm. brought what she had. Mm-hmm. That's what was happening in the church. It's such a great example. We see, you know, when a newborn baby comes into a family, you know that the church will those who can We'll cook meals and bring them. Not everybody can do that. Not everybody's got the legal prowess that this friend of yours had. But being the church is bringing what we do have to the table and responding to the needs of the church around us. And when I say the church, I mean you. (laughs) I'm talking about you. We are the church. We're God's unified testimony of his grace. So how will you respond this week to the needs of the church? I don't know about you, but not everything in my life is as it should be. I have a brother who has suffered an affliction for 40 plus years, and he's not getting better. He's getting worse, Mm. all in all. But I'm not in despair. I have hope. Because one day Jesus will set everything right. That's where the story is headed. In Acts 17, Paul says to the Athenians, God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof to this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Paul is saying that one day Jesus will look at every injustice in the world and he will set every single one right. The writer of Hebrews makes the same point in chapter 1. Your throne, O Lord, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Jesus is just. He loves righteousness. He hates wickedness. So one Mm. day he will banish everything that causes evil and that destroys his good creation. Everything will be set right. This is where the story is headed. But wait, I remember a passage in Romans. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. Together they have become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. So if Jesus is going to judge evil and unrighteousness and banish it forever, and no one is righteous, which includes me and you, what hope do I have? What hope do you have? Our only hope is in Jesus, the one who saves us from the fire of justice that's coming to cleanse the world. And you know what's so beautiful about that, about Jesus making us right, is that's not a someday promise. Mm-hmm. 
that's the right now promise. So the work of God making, you know, the 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 deep assurance that one day everything will be right. A lot of that is for later. We're not experiencing it right now. Like everything is not right in my world, Perry. Mm-hmm. But I'm right with God already. Yeah. Now because of Jesus. The new creation has broken in. Yes. And one of the greatest signs of that is that we have been set right with God through faith in Jesus. Because of the cross where Jesus took our judgment day, I look forward to living in a world where everything is as it should be, where my brother is whole and healed, mm-hmm. where the things that, that just aren't going to resolve for you in your lifetime will be set right. And that is our great hope. That That is our great hope. I'll, I'll be, can I be honest with you about how sure. <laughs> my heart kind of responds to that message? Like, I can't wait for that day. And simultaneously, there's an ache in me for it now. Yeah. I'm just being honest. Absolutely. No, I think there should be. There should be a tension. There should be a longing. There should be even a lament that it isn't as it should be yet. Yeah. Yeah, I think part of that is God in us, right? Mm-hmm. Like he also laments that things are not as they're going to be, not yet, but he's yeah. working his plan. Yeah. Well, in Romans 8, it says the Holy Spirit within us groans mm-hmm. with words that can't be expressed for us to come to our full redemption. It says that the creation is groaning, longing for the world to be set right. Yeah. And sometimes, so I'm not, a, it's not audible for me. It, it I literally feel this um, pressure in my chest. Mm. Like when you, when you said that sentence, like I feel a physical, like, ugh, you know what I mean? Like a pressure in my chest that things are not as they should be. And I, and I hold to, hold God to his promise that mm-hmm. everything is going to be as it should be. And in the time of waiting, cling to him. Yeah, and he's also given us a deposit, Mm -hmm. a guarantee of what is coming, and that's the Holy Spirit within us. We have the Holy Spirit, a taste of the future to help us in the present. Thanks for letting Perry and Shauna walk the real-life journey with you. The content from the Perry and Shauna podcast comes from their live show, Barry and Shauna, mornings on 89.3 Moody Radio, Grand Rapids, Michigan. Reach out to us by texting 800-968-8930 and please subscribe.